Hello there, friends. Welcome once more to the History Obscura Reading Room, a place where you never really know what's going to find its way onto my tea tray. Today I was dusting the epistolary section of the library, a menial task that I nevertheless trust to no one but myself, and I found a particularly fascinating tale with which to treat you. I do hope you have your tea ready. I'd offer to share some of these splendid little cakes with you, but you know. Anyway, these treats are rather potent. Let's begin. Once upon a time, in late August of the year 79 AD, as the ancient Roman Pliny the Younger recalled in a letter to the historian Tacitus, my uncle was stationed at Mycenaeum, in active command of the fleet. On the 24th of August, in the early afternoon, my mother drew his attention to a cloud of unusual size and appearance. He had been out in the sun, had taken a cold bath, and lunched while lying down, and was then working at his books. He called for his shoes and climbed up to a place which would give him the best view of the phenomenon. It was not clear at that distance from which mountain the cloud was rising. It was afterwards known to be Vesuvius. Its general appearance can best be expressed as being like an umbrella pine, for it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk and then split off into branches. I imagine because it was thrust upwards by the first blast and then left unsupported as the pressure subsided, or else it was borne down by its own weight so that it spread out and gradually dispersed. In places it looked white, elsewhere blotched and dirty, according to the amount of soil and ashes it carried. My uncle's scholarly acumen saw at once that it was important enough for closer inspection, and he ordered a boat to be made ready, telling me I could come with him if I wished. I replied that I preferred to go on with my studies and as it happened, he had himself given me some writing to do. As he was leaving the house, he was handed a message from Rectina, wife of Tascus, whose house was at the foot of the mountain, so that escape was impossible except by boat. She was terrified by the danger threatening her, and implored him to rescue her from her fate. He changed his plans, and what he had begun in a spirit of inquiry, he completed as a hero. He gave orders for the warships to be launched, and went on board himself with the intention of bringing help to many more people besides Rectina, for this lovely stretch of coast was thickly populated. He hurried to the place which everyone else was hastily leaving, steering his course straight for the danger zone. He was entirely fearless, describing each new movement and phase of the portent to be noted down exactly as he observed them. 
ashes were already falling, hotter and thicker as the ships drew near, followed by bits of pumice and blackened stones, charred and cracked by the flames. Then suddenly they were in shallow water, and the shore was blocked by the debris from the mountain. For a moment, my uncle wondered whether to turn back, but when the helmsman advised this, he refused, telling him that fortune stood by the courageous and they must make for Pompanius at Stabe. He was cut off there by the breadth of the bay, for the shore gradually curves round a basin filled by the sea, so that he was not as yet in danger, though it was clear that this would come nearer as it spread. Pomponius had therefore already put his belongings on board ship, intending to escape if the contrary wind fell. This wind was of course full in my uncle's favor, and he was able to bring his ship in. He embraced his terrified friend, cheered and encouraged him, and thinking he could calm his fears by showing his own composure, gave orders that he was to be carried to the bathroom. After his bath, he lay down and dined. He was quite cheerful, or at any rate he pretended he was, which was no less courageous. Meanwhile on Mount Vesuvius, broad sheets of fire and leaping flames blazed at several points, their bright glare emphasized by the darkness of night. My uncle tried to allay the fears of his companions by repeatedly declaring that these were nothing but bonfires left by the peasants in their terror, or else empty houses on fire in the districts they had abandoned. Then he went to rest and certainly slept, for as he was a stout man his breathing was rather loud and heavy and could be heard by people coming and going outside his door. By this time the courtyard giving access to his room was full of ashes mixed with pumice stones, so that its level had risen, and if he had stayed in the room any longer, he would never have gotten out. He was wakened, came out and joined Pomponius and the rest of the household who had sat up all night. They debated whether to stay indoors or take their chance in the open for the buildings were now shaking with violent shocks and seemed to be swaying to and fro as if they were torn from their foundations. Outside, on the other hand, there was the danger of falling pumice stones, even though these were light and porous. However, after comparing the risks, they chose the latter. In my uncle's case, one reason outweighed the other but for the others it was a choice of fears. As protection against falling objects, they put pillows on their heads, tied down with cloths. Elsewhere, there was daylight by this time, but they were still in darkness, blacker and denser than any ordinary night, which they relieved by lighting torches and various kinds of lamps my uncle decided to go down to the shore and investigate on the spot, the possibility of any escape by sea, but he found the waves still wild and dangerous. 
a sheet was spread on the ground for him to lie down, and he repeatedly asked for cold water to drink. Then the flames and smell of sulfur, which gave warning of the approaching fire, drove the others to take flight and roused him to stand up. He stood leaning on two slaves and then suddenly collapsed, I imagine because the dense fumes choked his breathing by blocking his windpipe, which was constitutionally weak and narrow and often inflamed. When daylight returned on the 26th, two days after the last day he had been seen, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed and looking more like sleep than death. In a second letter, again to Tacitus, Pliny the Younger described the second day of the eruption as he experienced it personally in Mycenaeum. Ashes were already falling, not as yet very thickly. I looked round. A dense black cloud was coming up behind us, spreading over the earth like a flood. Let us leave the road while we can still see, I said, or we shall be knocked down and trampled underfoot in the dark by the crowd behind. We had scarcely sat down to rest when darkness fell, not the dark of a moonless or cloudy night, but as if the lamp had been put out in a closed room. You could hear the shrieks of women, the wailing of infants, and the shouting of men, some were calling their parents, others their children or their wives, trying to recognize them by their voices. People bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives, and there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying. Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left, and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore. There were people, too, who added to the real perils by inventing fictitious dangers. Some reported that part of Mycenaeum had collapsed or another part was on fire, and though their tales were false, they found others to believe them. A gleam of light returned, but we took this to be a warning of the approaching flames rather than daylight. However, the flames remained some distance off, then darkness came on once more, and ashes began to fall again, this time in heavy showers. We rose from time to time and shook them off, otherwise we should have been buried and crushed beneath their weight. I could boast that not a groan or cry of fear escaped me in these perils but I admit that I derived some poor consolation in my mortal lot from the belief that the whole world was dying with me, and I with it. Please do consider supporting the podcast either through Anchor or Patreon.com forward slash History Obscura. Become a patron and you'll get ad-free episodes and extra bedtime stories. Thanks! Good night.